Welcome to this BJSM podcast. I'm Sylvia Zupon, physical therapist at Washington University in St. Louis, Missouri. We have the privilege of speaking with Shirley Sarman, who is one of the most recognized and respected names in all of physical therapy and whose accolades are too numerous to recite. She's been a PT for over 50 years. I've had the pleasure of knowing you for many years, so when I think of you, I immediately think of the movement system. But this concept may be unfamiliar to some of our listeners. Can you tell us a little bit more about it and why it's so important? I started with uh, polio patients and then progressed to uh, severely involved neurological patients and then uh, finally musculoskeletal. And then as I got involved with musculoskeletal patients, it really became clear that indeed moving optimally is, is really key. Uh, I've also been fascinated that if you want to find injuries, you go to the exercising population. And these aren't contact injuries, but most of them are non-contact injury. So I've always been keen about what is it that makes some people perform really at a high level? What is it that some people can perform, but maybe they're not so high? What is it that causes uh, musculoskeletal pain problems? And so in the course of, of doing exams and looking at people with musculoskeletal pain, it, it, it again reinforced the idea that it's not so easy as to just go out and do it. Or even just walking isn't something that everybody does optimally. The, my other fascination was how uh, we all move our center of gravity about the same, but yet you can recognize somebody at a distance by how they move. All of that adds up to my goodness, we, we go to a dentist to get our teeth all cared for for all of our life. And here, in all we do with our teeth is speak and eat. And yet here we are with this whole body that has to move. And movement seems to cause injury. Movement is devastating when one of the systems is, is bad. And then, of course, it became clear that physical therapists are the ones that are the best suited to take care of this movement system. Uh, putting together the need for physical therapy to have an identity, and it's always been clear to me that those professions that were in charge of a specific system of the body had recognition for that expertise, recognizing the complexity and importance of movement, and that it really involves multiple systems. It's really a system of systems. So if I combine all that, if we promote the value, the understanding of the movement system, that's like dentists promoting the value of the oral cavity and keeping it healthy. Only I think this has even more implications. It will help physical therapists define where they should be and what system they're in charge of and move on from there rather than remaining kind of nondescript cheerleaders. Um, I think that would be an incredible um, contribution to, to the health of society. So this movement system impairment approach to examination and treatment of musculoskeletal pain problems focuses on the concepts of relative stiffness and relative flexibility. Can you give some examples of this and discuss your thoughts on how this relates to the development and or propagation of musculoskeletal pain problems? I'm, I'm one, first of all, a major proponent of the whole movement system. The, the second thing is, in over the years that I've been um, addressing uh, movement problems, I'm not meaning that this, what we call movement system impairment approach, be the only diagnostic category, the only approach to addressing movement system problems. I think there's going to be multiple forms. Other people have <clears throat> diagnostic categories, Peter O'Sullivan, the treatment-based classification, the McKinsey people. So I, I, I want to be sure that they, and I appreciate all of their contributions to the movement system. 
and then I'll speak to why I've moved in the direction of what I call movement system impairments. And, and number one is, I think what I brought to musculoskeletal uh, therapy was the role of the nervous system. Um, I, I didn't do it on purpose, but it just became clear over time. So I would do things like muscle length assessments, etc., and and specific muscle testing as I had been brought up to do in the polio era. So when I put it together, there were certain things that just didn't make sense. For example, and, and this pertains to the both concepts overall. If I would do a what, what's called a, a two-joint hip flexor length test, or even watching people sitting and extending their knee, which was a form of hamstring assessment, I would see that the uh, part, that the pelvis would move before I got to the end of the muscle length. If I had people prone and I passively flexed their knee, their pelvis would move, and that would happen long before I got to the end of the muscle length. And yet I had been brought up to be taught that that movement was coming from short muscles. Well, if I stabilized the part that was moving, the muscle wouldn't be short in at least 50% of the cases. And I thought, whoa, I don't get this. It, it just doesn't make sense. So being as swift as I am, about 20 years later, I, I started to put it together. <laughs> and, and also it, it, it derived in part from my exposure in the uh, neuroscience world, neuro, uh, neurophysiology in particular, in, in that people talked about the spring-like behavior of muscles. Well, then it, it kind of bit by bit became clear that really if you were doing the two-joint hip flexor test and the hip flexor was pulling on the pelvis, it would cause it to move if the hip flexors were stiffer than the abdominals, nevertheless the back. And that really wasn't related to length. It was related to the passive property of muscle. So um, that is basically the basis of relative stiffness. And indeed, muscles have spring-like properties. Their passive tension curves. Just I had never realized it changed. I thought what I learned in muscle physiology or muscle biology was it, and that's how it was fixed. Well, it, 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 reading through everything and, and being exposed to a lot of opportunities to learn more, it became clear that, sort of obviously, that the more you hypertrophy a muscle, the stiffer it gets. And yet in activities, we don't hypertrophy all of our contiguous muscles exactly the same. So your abdominals may not get as stiff as your hip flexors. Or you can go the other way around. You can have abdominals that are stiffer than your hip flexors, and then you end up in a posterior tilt. It really became clear that these movements that took place because of the relative stiffness of muscles were more associated with the pain problem than any kind of short muscles. In fact, I, I really believe that there aren't that many short muscles that our real problem is the relative stiffness. The intervention is not to stretch the muscle that's been identified as short because it really isn't short, but the intervention is to stiffen the musculature that can't successfully oppose the passive stiffness of the other muscles. And when I'm using the term stiffness here, I'm, I'm restricting it to the passive properties and not the full-blown combination of active and passive properties. Um, because I think it's the, the passive stability that's uh, one of the most important. And the other concept, and I've kind of broken them out into two concepts now, relative flexibility I'm trying to limit to pertain to the joint itself. And you 
look at the proposed uh, paradigms for degenerative disc disease, then after this sort of initial dysfunction, they talk about there are like four stages of what they call instability or uh, hypermobility. I, I think a good term is, is micro-instability. I think that little bit of movement is the thing that really causes the uh, tissue trauma to, to the joint and to surrounding tissues. It's an accessory movement, basically. And I think the accessory motion is what becomes hypermobile. And that's why I refer to relative flexibility. Now, why did I get there when I can't measure it, whatever? Well, number one is I can test someone and their, let's say, their right tensor fasciolata is causing their pelvis to rotate. And yet, um, when I do the two-joint hip flexor test, and yet, and the left may not be short at all. And yet, when I put them prone and I flex their knee, the right one won't cause lumbopelvic motion, but the left one will, even though it wasn't graded as stiff. And I always thought, well, that relates to how flexible the spine is itself. With using motion analysis, if you take people that have back pain and people who don't have back pain, and they're prone and they flex their knee, or they do hip rotation, either medial or lateral, in the people with back pain, the pelvis moves, the lumbopelvic area moves earlier, and it moves more. How much earlier? Like two seconds. How much more? Like two degrees. So we're not talking about a huge amount of movement. We're talking about a little bit of movement. So I, I think that's relative flexibility, that we have to deal with two things. The intrinsic mobility of the spine that becomes hypermobile, and then the relative stiffness those two factors combined with sort of um, motor learning, I believe, are the ones that combine to set what I think is the most important concept, that the body takes the path of least resistance for movement. Say you do have a patient that comes in with, like, groin pain, for example. Can you discuss a little bit of your clinical reasoning as to what you look at to determine whether symptoms are coming from the back, the hip, or both? I know these are frequently intertwined. Well, yeah, I, um, I actually, that was always the, the most fun thing for me was uh, when a patient came in with pain in this hip region, was it coming from the back or the hip, or what was the relationship between both? The, the major point being we're looking for non-optimal accessory motions in the hip that are associated with this anterior groin pain. Um, I, I think also we, we do specific muscle testing and most often you find weakness of the hip lateral rotators, poor control by the abductors that also uh, go along with this condition. So, uh, And then also we've become very mindful of the fact that there is this uh, FAI uh, problem, the structural variations where you have a cam impingement. And clearly those patients that can't flex their hip more than 90 degrees it's a it's a red flag that they're going to have these impingement problems. Um, I I do know I've tested people that didn't have back pain that had limited hip flexion and I think it's a matter again of activity and lifestyle as to whether even these cam impingements become problematic for for people or or not. Uh, I think one of the most interesting factors on the hip problems is that. Most often they're bilateral, and yet usually one hip becomes affected. So it has to speak to another factor besides just the structural variation, and that has to be how they move. So this interplay is uh, 
to kind of sum it up, oh, is the pain coming from the hip or the groin? Most often anterior groin pain is related to the hip joint itself. Pain that's lateral, pain that's posterior might be coming from the back. And as I said uh, previously, that movements of the hip, we clearly have lots of evidence that they cause lumbopelvic motion. If that causes back pain or the radiating pain, we know it's coming from the back. And uh, while the other pains, back motions don't elicit the symptoms, but movements of the hip do. And then there's uh, impairment in the patterns of movements of the hip joint itself. So then, Shirley, would you say that these anterior glide sign tests that we typically perform in supine, are they more often an issue of muscle recruitment or of bony restriction, or do you see an equal number of both? Even with the uh, CAM type of impingement, there's a micro-instability. And so the only way that we as as physical therapists who don't do surgery can contribute to forms of micro-instability is through the, the muscle control in a whole lot of specific direction. So I think it's a lot of teaching people uh, what they shouldn't do. If you have a cam impingement, you can't be trying to pull your knee to your chest. That's not a good thing. Uh, I think you can't do deep squats. So I think one, and in fact some people, if they're tall and their knees are higher than their hips, they really also have to have a wedge to sit on or, or a chair that tilts down. That There's certain things with, that you just can't do, and that's why it's important to identify them. Uh, in on other hips where they move too too much, I think, like in, in dancers or people that do yoga or that are hypermobile to begin with, you have to use muscle control and a lot of training of, of basic activities so that they move as optimally as possible. As you know, Sylvia, that uh, the whole pattern that's being identified both for the knee and the hip is during a squat of internal rotation and, and uh, a deduction. And learning to control that during all activities is, uh, to me, one of the keys. So muscle control is important, but that's got to be built into uh, the, the way you do everyday activities and knowing what you can do and can't do based on hip structure. So, Shirley, you've also taught a lot, a lot, uh, across the country. Uh, so what are some of the common mistakes you notice new clinicians make, and what kind of advice would you give them? So I, I think we have a lack of emphasis on examination and that we have a major emphasis on treatment and to me you can't treat well unless you've done a really good exam so my, my big advice is that, that you really need to, to get a, a, a set exam and you need to pay attention I'm, I know one of the kind of criticisms of um, MSI approach and it's a mistaken criticism is that we don't do anything with our hands. Well, I have my hands all over the patient because it's as important to me what I can feel as, as what I can see. And uh, I am feeling for accessory motions. I, I don't do it for passive movement, but for understanding how the patient moves naturally. I do it for stabilization, not just for mobilization. And it's got to be like uh, giving them feedback on how they should move. So... My big advice is get a standard exam that you do on every patient. Then you get efficient. Then you get a data set. Because what's the big difference between a novice and an expert? Pattern recognition. And if you want to have pattern recognition, that means you've got to keep doing a standard exam to know what those patterns are. 
Number two is pay attention to what you feel. Don't just jump in to do something. And uh, and then, and I think my other third bit of advice is do learn a classification system. Uh, I, I do not believe anyone's going to realize how much the physical therapy profession can figure things out until we put labels on them. And And then, probably last of all, is pay attention to what doesn't make sense in your exam. We have so many, you know, like it used to be short is strong and long is weak. And people would just go along with that. Or if somebody extended their knee and the pelvis moved, they say, oh, hamstrings are short. Well, check it out. Don't just take it for granted that those old-time traditions really are set in stone. Are they they're even accurate? Because I don't think most of the things are, are accurate. Shirley, are there any other points you want to bring up for our audience that you haven't covered thus far? Well, I'll just just throw in one more thing that I didn't say before. My hope is, well, there are two things. One is that physical therapists will be lifespan practitioners, not just through their lifespan, but taking care of clients and patients all through the lifespan. Um, Just like, again, with with the teeth, our movement system and how we move is... is, uh, is critical to your musculoskeletal health, and, and that has to do with how you uh, move in society. As, Sylvia, as you know, the APTA adopted a, a new vision statement, and, it, and it's, it's mind-boggling, but more and more I, I think it's, it's just so good it's that we're going to transform society by optimizing the movement, by optimizing movement to enhance the human experience. And I, I really think we can, and I really think we can put some inroads into reducing health care costs because we can treat things conservatively and, and not let people get scared by the slightest little little pain problem. And then my one other little thing is is uh, I, I want physical therapists to take back exercise. I, I think um, we don't learn enough about it. We don't emphasize it enough in our educational programs. I think people have gotten in the habit of... Uh, too much passive therapy of all sorts and not enough real recognition of the incredible precision that's required for well-designed exercise programs. That should come along with the movement exam. Is your muscles right? Is your alignment right? Is your aerobic capacity right? Is your strength right? We should be assessing all of those and helping to draft a program, recognizing structural variations and say, you have femoral antiversion a ballet career is not in your future. And, and help guide people early on rather than let them injure joints by doing all the wrong things. So that's what I want to, want to get across. We need to be lifespan practitioners, and we need to be really the exercise, exercise experts. Well, thank you, Shirley, for joining us today. We appreciate your time, and I know that I feel as though no matter how often I talk to you or hear you talk, I always learn a little something new. So to our listeners, thanks for listening to this BJSM podcast. For easy access to this and other great podcasts, look for the BJSM app available for iOS and Android. 